This episode of Primitive Culture is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the non-profit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. This is Tim Russ, Lieutenant Commander Tuvok on Star Trek Voyager, and you're listening to Trek FM. Open your mind to the past. Oh, this may mean something. It's a primitive culture. I'm just trying to blend in. Some people think the future means the end of history. Well... We haven't run out of history quite yet. Hello and welcome to Primitive Culture, a Trek FM podcast about our history, our culture and how Star Trek relates to it. My name is Clara Cook and joining me again today is my fellow co-host Duncan Barrett. Hello Duncan, how are you? I'm I'm good, Clara. I'm slightly sweltering in an unseasonable uh, heat. I don't know whether the Cardassians have taken over London and turned the thermostat up, but it's it's unbearably hot at the moment. I don't know about you, but uh, I'm good other than that. Yeah, it's like the first hot day that we've had this year. Um, and I think everyone in Britain is kind of in shock, really, aren't we? <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We're not used to it. We don't know how to cope. We're not used to it. So... Today, we're going to talk about something that's really exciting. So I'm really, I'm really happy to talk about today's topic because today we're going to actually discuss the work of our long-standing host, Duncan Barrett himself. And <laughs> this episode of Primitive Culture, we're going to visit Duncan's writing career because Duncan has a new book coming out and its content has a little more than just a little, well, has more than just a little similarity to the excellent stories of Star Trek Deep Space Nine. So just to introduce you a little bit to what Duncan has been writing about in this last few years, it's called Hitler's British Isles and it is about the German occupation of the Channel Islands in World War Two, And the Channel Islands are islands that are British territory. They, they belong to Britain, but they're sort of islands in between Britain and France in the sea. In the Channel, funnily enough. They're in the Channel. Yeah, that's why they're called the Channel Islands. <laughs> <laughs> I'm only saying this perhaps maybe for our American audience who maybe know, don't know, know, know the, the <laughs> geography of, of, of no, Britain. No, to be honest, look, I think a lot of English people don't know where the Channel Islands are. It's not obvious as it sounds. <laughs> So one of the reasons why this is a really exciting topic is because, well, for one thing, it's not something that's written about very often. It's not something that's discussed a lot when World War II is talked about in British culture, or indeed, in fact, actually, you're not really taught about it much in school. But it's also because the British and I would say probably generally the Western world are kind of obsessed with the idea of the Nazis occupying Britain. And there's lots of you know, films and TV, sort of fictional dramas about the Nazis actually having won the war and invading Britain or or invading parts of the Western world like America. Now, the thing is, we don't actually have to imagine this because the Germans did occupy the Channel Islands. They did occupy British territory. And so we actually have real historical like accounts of what it's actually, what it actually was like to be under German rule as a British person. So, but enough from me because I mm-hmm. want to hear from the man himself who's actually re- written the book. Duncan, can I ask you, why did you choose to write about this occupation specifically, as opposed to, say, for instance, the occupation of mainland France or Europe? 
Um, well, I guess partly it interests me for the reason um, that you said that it's it's a slightly less well known story. I mean, I when I was you know studying history at school, we learnt about the occupation in France. I think we kind of were aware that there were occupations, you know, in Holland in other countries in Europe, but I don't think anyone ever mentioned the Channel Islands. It's, it's partly that. It's also, practically speaking, I speak English, so <laughs> I mean, I don't speak good enough <laughs> French. Like, I would love to write a book about the French Resistance, but I don't speak good enough French to, to do that research. So that was kind of a limiting factor in a sense. But, I mean, essentially, the, the books that I write, the history books that I write, are, they're usually, they're about ordinary people's experiences of typically the Second World War. I did do one book about the First World War, which was a bit different but usually they're they're about the second world war and they're based on interviews with people who have shared a particular experience so for example i did a book about women who served in the forces in the war uh, i did a book about um, women who uh, married american gis during the war and then went over to america afterwards and and so a lot of my interest in the war is very much the kind of civilian experience of the war it's not so much the battles and the kind of it's not the soldiers war it's not the kind of political war it's the kind of war on the ground for the you know, the housewife who's trying to put dinner on the table and, and not get blown up at the same time. And in a way, the Channel Islands is sort of the ideal uh, civilians at war story because, you, you know, it, it is a kind of, you know, the people there, they're not fighting. They are basically just trying to get on with their lives, but they're literally living side by side with the enemy. You know, in some cases, they had the Germans living in their houses. So for me, it's kind of got that perfect balance of the kind of broader historical drama of the war unfolding and then the kind of ordinary people trying their best to kind of get through it in a sense. And one of the things that I found, I mean, researching this book, I, I went and um, stayed in the Channel Islands for about three months. I interviewed about 100 odd people to kind of find out some of their personal stories and, and what it was like really, you know, living through this experience. And I think one of the things that we in England kind of miss out on is we, you know, we know that we have this kind of narrative about England and Britain in the war and the kind of blitz spirit and the kind of determination to go on. And, you know, we were winning the war alone, you know, before the Americans joined the war and so on. We kind of don't realise actually the people in the Channel Islands uh, had their own version of that. You know, they had their own kind of grit and determination. They didn't have a blitz, but they had, you know, a thousand other difficulties to contend with, whether that was starvation, whether that was, you, you know, the kind of day-to-day -day struggles of living with your enemy literally on your doorstep. And they kind of got through it with exactly that same kind of determination and strength of character as the people on the mainland did. And I sort of feel like it's actually, I think it's important in, in its own right that people learn more about the Channel Islands story. But I also think it's important for Britain to kind of bring that into our history of the war and to kind of recognise that as an important part of what happened and not to kind of brush it under the carpet and sort of just say, oh yeah, yeah, we don't talk about that bit. That was just some kind of, that was a sort of sideshow. That doesn't really matter. That didn't affect the outcome of the war. You know, this is a, a big part of the British experience of the Second World War. And I think we need to kind of reclaim it in a way. How is the German occupation of the Channel Islands different than other occupations? I mean, you've mentioned some ways in which the it's not an occupation where perhaps maybe people are fighting over territory. It was kind of surrendered without really a battle. And I suppose also, yeah, like you were saying, uh, it's, it's a smaller area. It's, it's, you know, it's attached to a territory that hasn't been conquered, occupied, which is the rest of Britain. But how is it different from other occupations during World War II or just other occupations in history? I think certainly in the, in the kind of Second World War context, it's quite unique. I mean, Tony and I did an episode of Primitive Culture way back last year looking at the French resistance. And so we sort of touched a little bit there on the kind of 
occupation that was going on in France at the time, which was quite repressive, which was quite brutal, you know, sort of people being shot in the street. And then the other side of that, they had this sort of militarised resistance movement, the Marquis, who were, you know, had guns and bombs and were kind of, you know, were really kind of fighting to try and um, sabotage that regime. The situation in the Channel Islands was quite different. They, they called it the model occupation. The idea was that it was a kind of a soft occupation. It was going to, it was going to partly be a kind of public relations exercise because Hitler's intention was to move on to Britain next. And they had this idea that, you know, if they could prove that the Germans were capable of occupying a country uh, while sort of respecting the population, then it would make it that much easier to conquer Britain because it would kind of weaken the resolve to to fight back against them in a sense. And they wouldn't see the same kind of resistance as they had in France, for example. And and the reason, you know, the, the link to Deep Space Nine, I suppose, and the reason that we're covering this topic today is that one of my favourite sort of runs of episodes in, in Deep Space Nine, probably my favourite kind of... Uh, self-contained arc in the whole of Star Trek is the series of episodes at the start of the sixth season of Deep Space Nine, which is when the station is occupied. And what interests me about those episodes is that we've had over and over again in Deep Space Nine, and again later on as well, we've had this kind of emphasis on the the brutal past of the Bajoran occupation and how terrible it was and, you know, the rapes and the murders and the, the labour camps and all these terrible things. And then I think in a, a kind of stroke of brilliance, the writers of Deep Space Nine stage a second uh, occupation, but one which is much murkier, much more kind of shades of grey, you know, and they even have Quark in that first episode of the sixth season saying, you know, uh, he says, do you hear the cries of starving children? You know, this is not the occupation that in a way someone like Kira or like the Bajorans are expecting. It is much more a model occupation. So it's very much, again, that kind of same thing. What does it mean to be wrapped up in something that is form of occupation that is is not kind of brutal and repressive in such an obvious way but at the same time you are still living under the power of a foreign regime you are still you know your liberties are curtailed massively you are still possibly witness to certain kind of authoritarian brutality even if it's not directed at you uh specifically and you know what are the kind of moral compromises what are the kind of decisions that people make where do you kind of place yourself in a situation like that and i think it's really interesting um you know in those uh, six episodes of deep space 9 seeing how the various characters that we've got to know over the past 5 years sort of deal with that very compromising situation and and where they end up kind of facing themselves in relation to it so let's like kind of look at that in a little bit more detail. And one of the ways um, I thought we could start by doing that is by looking at the withdrawal of the Federation from Deep Space Nine in the mm. final final uh, episode of season five. And mm. I thought that was really interesting. Uh, season five, episode 26, Call to Arms. I thought that was a really interesting parallel because from one of the things that you say in the book is that the is that Churchill was really reluctant. So Churchill was the prime minister at the time a Prime Minister of Britain at the time of World War II, just for anyone who doesn't know any World War II history, and how reluctant he was to let go of the Channel Islands. And he had to kind of be persuaded to do that. And one of the things that Cisco is really reluctant to do is to let go of Deep Space Nine. He sees Deep Space Nine as a key strategic place um, in the Alpha Quadrant to preventing the Dominion from coming through the wormhole. And there's some excellent scenes in in that episode where... This, it's almost like a phony war. It's like the war before a real war, you know, the sort of tensions and uh, and the rumours flying around and everyone is so signing non-aggression pacts with each other and the Dominion is building up this bigger, each day it's 
this huge amount of ships are coming through the wormhole dominion ships it's building up this bigger and bigger arsenal of weapons and, and forces basically so that you know there's going to be a war it's like that weird uneasy period right before a war actually starts and there's some excellent um, scenes between Cisco and Wei Yun who's the Vorta who's in charge of the force I suppose it, the Dominion force in in the Alpha Quadrant where they sort of seem very nice and very polite but neither back down and they come away from meeting and Cisco says something very interesting which is like there will be war so there's no mention of war when they talk to each other but he just knows coming away yeah there's definitely going to be a war and he doesn't want to leave the station but he's ordered to leave the station by the federation who deem it to they have to pull back i suppose in order to try and fight later on so it's a they lose a little battle in order to try and win the war so when you watch that episode did you feel that there were some parallels to like the withdrawal of britain from the channel islands yeah, I mean, basically what happened with the Channel Islands is that, as you say, Churchill was very much of the view that they should, as a matter of principle, they should fight to defend them. You know, they should commit kind of military resources to protect this British territory. And essentially what happened was he was quite new in the job at the time. He was not in a particularly strong position. Uh, and the rest of his war cabinet basically all came and said to him, look, we can't do this. You know, if we commit our resources to the Channel Islands, uh, we leave the British mainland in danger. You know, the, the, if the Germans do choose to invade, we won't be able to defend it properly. Which interestingly is reminiscent of this episode. It's also reminiscent later on where there's this debate where Cisco decides to take back the station. And there's this whole debate about, well, but if you do that, do you leave Earth vulnerable? Um, and, you know, you can only really keep your, you know, use your military assets in one place or another. And in the end, in the Star Trek version, you know, Cisco says that it doesn't really matter if we leave Earth vulnerable because that's not the key. Obviously, that's not true in the situation with the Channel Islands. It was kind of, it was sort of a no-brainer once it, it once it got to that, you, you know, whatever the kind of lofty principles were of fighting to defend your territory, the stakes were so high at that point and you know, the whole of Europe had basically just crumbled in the face of the German forces. You know, Britain was pretty much alone by that point uh, as the sort of last defence in a way, the sort of last line of defence. And really, no one, even Churchill, was willing to take that risk or to do anything that, that might risk the security of the mainland. So they did take this decision reluctantly to demilitarise. They didn't fight for the islands at all. They didn't even, you know, at least in the in a call to arms, I suppose they they put up a fight I mean, dramatically, it works quite well because it is a kind of planned withdrawal, but they put up a fight long enough to uh, get those mines in place and then they leave. So you sort of get the drama of the kind of, you know, there there is a bit of sort of, of battle and so on going on and then they decide to leave. Um, in the Channel Islands situation, they literally just made the decision, evacuated all their troops, um, and then the Germans kind of pretty much were able to to walk right in without facing any kind of resistance. The Germans couldn't quite believe it. I mean, the Germans launched a bombing raid on the islands and killed uh, 44 people because they wanted to... They hadn't kind of officially been told that the islands were demilitarised and they were quite sceptical about it. And so they wanted to check, you know, they thought, well, if we go in there and start bombing, then if there are any weapons or any, if there are any, you know, anti-aircraft guns, if there is anyone there. Well, that... That couldn't have endeared yeah. them to the population of the Channel Islands who were just about to be... I mean, that's not really... In a way, I can see why they they wanted to have a soft occupation, like you said, to show the British public and the rest of Europe that they could occupy a, a country, perhaps with a lighter touch. But bombing people before you invade is definitely going to, I would say, lose lose some hearts and minds, surely. 
Well, we kind of saw it, though, uh, you know, a few years ago now with the invasion of Iraq, didn't we? It was called shock and awe. And it, I think in some ways their approach was quite similar. It's like, you know, you, you smash everything to smithereens, terrify people. I mean, you know, people are being machine gunned in the street. And then, you know, when you turn up the next day, they're not going to... You've kind of crushed them to some extent. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, you subdued you've kind them. Of scared, yeah. Exactly. You've scared them into submission. Um, and so what happened was after the raid, they then dropped these ultimatums saying, it's, it, we need you to signal your surrender, fly white flags from every building. Uh, on Jersey, this was. On Guernsey, it was slightly different. And literally, you know, people would be sticking pairs of old knickers out the window on a broom handle or, you know, oh, everyone God. had to... Was, had to <laughs> had to sort of, you know, individually signal their surrender as well as the nation surrendering, if you know what I mean. It wasn't enough just for a kind of official surrender. Everyone who stayed had to basically participate in that. Mm. Uh, and I think it was quite a kind of humiliating experience in a way to be part of that. I mean, lots of people told me they, you know, they remember bitterly those kind that moment of kind of, you know, walking down the street and seeing every house had some kind of white thing fluttering out the window and that kind of complete submission in a sense to the to the enemy quite different i suppose from what happens in the deep space nine example where you know kira and odo have that sort of defiant moment where they you know set off cisco's plan to trash the station essentially so they kind of even right at the beginning they gain back a little bit of agency in a sense in that yes they're being forced to submit to it yes particularly for kira it's sort of humiliating she's being forced to officially welcome them to Deep Space Nine on behalf of Bajor. But at the same time, they've already put in into effect a kind of sabotage, in a sense, to, um, you know, make life difficult for them. I actually love that moment. That's one of my favourite moments in the whole... I mean, not my only favourite moment, but that's one of one of the favourites that I have in the uh, the story arc. It's just how, how badass it is. They just, you know, they destroy... I guess they sort of set off electrical charge or whatever, which destroys all the consoles and ops. And then mm. Kira says, you know, Ducat wants the station, he can have it. And mm. they kind of just walk off. And I'm like, mm. yes, you know, the, the, but, but at the same time as well, there are people who are leaving the station. You know, they, there's this order to evacuate all the Bajorans from Deep Space Nine because obviously the Bajorans have signed a non-aggression pact with the Dominion. So they don't want anyone to be injured in whatever conflict is about to start. And there's mm. that whole thing where Rom and Lita get married. And then right away, Rom has to try and persuade Lita to, to leave as soon as possible. And Rom's yeah. not going to leave. And that actually, while we're talking about, you know, the Rom and, and the station and everything, it is worth mentioning that we'll go on to talk about him later as well. When we talk about resistance and different types of resistance to occupi occupations and occupiers, but right away, different characters are staying on the station for different reasons. Yeah, you know, Quark is, is going to stay there because he has his business there, and he will serve drinks to the Dominion or serve drinks to the Federation. For him, it's he sort of sees it as one a change of change of power. You know, one one contingent comes in now and he serves them, and another contingent comes in later and he serves them. And it's only until later in the in the story that he starts to change his mind about the Dominion. But um, Rom really is staying. Even Quark seems confused as to why Rom is staying. You know, why are you staying? Why don't you go be with your wife, you know? But Rom is staying because he wants to take care of Quark, initially mm. at least. And also because he's the person who devised the plan to replicate the mines. The mines are self-replicating, right? So he's the one that desi designed the mines and came up with that plan. But there is a moment where he does sort of say, I'm staying to take care of you. And mm. it's kind of one of the only moments you really see between Quark and Rom that's actually like 
shows brotherly love really because <laughs> they're, yeah. they're always fighting but i think it's situations like this which does split families apart like it does did in the channel islands but also um also cements families together as well yeah definitely that's true i mean it, i suppose in some ways it's slightly unclear why rom is staying he he also says that he's going to function as a federation spy which i suppose it makes sense like if they can't have quark as a spy then having someone who's in his bar that would sort of make sense except that we find out quite quickly that no one's able to get any information out to the federation anyway so i'm not quite sure what the purpose uh, of a federation spy would be but i think you're right you know the kind of looking after uh, quark is possibly you know more what it's really about but i mean it's interesting. Yeah. Certainly with the Channel Islands, they had this period. So, so basically the, the troops were withdrawn and then immediately, uh, the local people were told that children could be sent away because you, you know, in the same way as they were in Britain, they were in London, they were sent to the countryside, for example. So there was a widespread evacuation of children. Uh, I mean, not all children, some children stayed, but an awful lot of children went to the mainland, sometimes with their mothers as well. But often, you know, families would be split. In some families, you know, the parents might stay with the older children and the younger children would be sent away. And of course, no one realised that it was going to be five years that they were separated for. But, you know, even so, it was a, it's a big deal to to split your family in that way. And it, it led to a lot of lasting difficulties for people, you know, when at the end of the war, those people came back and weren't necessarily able to to reintegrate easily. But there were also instances of, you know, couples where the husband would stay and the wife would leave. And typically, you know, the husband would stay for exactly the same kind of reason that Quark stays, you know, because they've got uh, a business there, they've got a farm, that's their source of income, you know, they're not going to abandon their, their farm which is their livelihood and their home to go and effectively go and be a refugee in England where they'd be living on handouts and, you know, really kind of struggling to survive. But there were instances of couples, you know, like Rom and Lita, where the husband would say to the wife, I don't want you here. It's too dangerous. I want you to go, you know, go to England, especially because the propaganda at the time represented the German army as very brutal as, you know, that they were kind of raping and pillaging. So women in particular were very anxious about the Germans arriving. But there were stories of, for example, you know there's a story i came across of the husband stayed and the woman evacuated and went to england and then realized she couldn't bear to be without her husband and got on the first boat back to the channel islands and meanwhile her husband had decided the same thing and got on the first boat over to england <laughs> and they missed each other and then this bombing raid happened and after the bombing raid no one could you, you know all the, the basically transport between the islands and britain was ended and so they ended up being separated for five years with the husband in england and the wife back in i think it was in guernsey that she was and and so they didn't see each other for five years i mean at least um rom and lita it's only i guess it's still a few months right because she only comes back you know into that arc and there's been this kind of three month gap i think between yeah, the end of like season three five months. and the start yeah. of season six so presumably he hasn't seen her for three months at least you know which is not nothing for a newly married couple i guess also the difference is obviously the Bajorans and the people living on the station don't know what the Dominion are like. Um, mm. And similarly, that the, the people in the Channel Islands didn't know what the Germans were like in terms of as an occupying force. But they do mm. know what the Cardassians are like. So I think it does come as quite a, quite a shock as like when three months later, a lot of the Bajorans start returning to the station. And like Quark says, this isn't the same kind of occupation. And mm. so one of the things I thought we could talk about next is this sort of idea of a soft occupation and then mm. how that actually becomes something sort of different over time, where this idea of like creeping authoritarianism, this sort of creeps mm. in and sort of takes a population by surprise. 
you know, maybe they're expecting a certain kind of occupation initially and the Germans turn out to be easier to get along with or easier to be occupied by in the beginning. But then over time, there's this creeping sort of intrusion into their lives and actually they realise, start to realise they aren't really free. And this is something that happens a lot in the case of um, Kira, definitely, as a character in this story arc, that she starts to sort of realise what the occupation really is after thinking it's something else. Yeah, definitely. I mean, so we start that arc in Deep Space Nine with Quark making this speech, basically saying, you know, this is not like the previous occupation. This is quite different. And you're right, Kira makes the same speech to that Vedic. You know, she says, she says, you know, it's different this time. And the Vedic basically says, well, is it, you know, or does it just seem like that? I think that's really interesting. I think it's interesting as well. Also, you know, we start the occupation story with, you know, with Ducat, Wayoon and Damar, and the three of them have quite different sort of attitudes towards this occupation in a sense. You kind of get the sense Demar would absolutely be up for a return to how it was, you know, during the occupation of Bajor. And that's kind of what he's expecting. Wayoon is on this kind of real PR mission, you know, very much as as the Germans were in the Channel Islands. You know, they'd had this uh, professor who'd come to visit and had recommended this kind of soft policy, basically, saying that, you know, if, if the Germans intended to invade England and to invade the mainland and to conquer the mainland, that it would make the life that much easier if they could have shown that they were kind of, that living under occupation wasn't that bad, basically. Um, and that it was something that, you know, uh, yeah, you know, probably that's not what they wanted, but the English, the British people might sort of put up with it essentially rather than, you know, staging resistance movements and so on, as was happening in France. And, you know, and, and Descartes is sort of, I don't know, Descartes is sort of somewhere, in between, maybe you sort of. I mean, the thing about Descartes is it's always about ego, isn't it? You kind of feel for him. It's like he gets his office back, he gets his desk. You know, he almost. I don't know that that almost seems like the most important thing for him. We're never quite sure with Descartes. You know, how much is he? He always represents himself as being this kind of softer, more reasonable, more civilized man who you know is just given these orders to do more brutal things. And obviously, in this instance, he gets to kind of he gets to sort of play out that fancy, and I guess he gets to rewrite. The occupation of Bajor to some extent, you know, in his relations with Kira, for example, and in the kind of things that he's saying to Zial, you know, he keeps trying to, and she has that line to him where she says, you know, basically, you've always told me that you were a good man and that you wanted to do things differently. Well, now you're in charge. You can choose to do things differently. You can, you know, have an occupation that is kind of just rather than unjust. But I suppose the problem is, as was the case in the Channel Islands, you know, Ultimately, I think having one population living underneath the other and kind of at the whim and the control of the other inevitably is going to lead to trouble, even if it takes a little while to kind of show itself. And, and certainly that was true in the Channel Islands. You know, to begin with, there was a, a real emphasis on getting on. You know, the Germans were on their best behaviour. The German soldiers were, you know, opening the doors for people, uh, buying children ice cream, you know, really surprised the civilians by how well behaved they were in a sense. The island's leaders were kind of keen to work with the Germans rather than against them because they felt that it would protect their own people's interests, basically, if they could kind of negotiate the kind of German rule rather than, you know, very much as you see with Odo taking his place on the council and so on, you know, trying to sort of be a representative and Kira even representing Bajor to them, you know, kind of keep the diplomatic channels open in a sense, you know, in order to try and, and kind of soften things. But ultimately, 
you know, whenever there's a tension about something, it, it, it creates trouble. So in the case of the Channel Islands, for example, one of the early tensions was the British started sending these commandos undercover to gather intelligence. And when the Germans would find out about that, it would kind of create tension uh, of various kinds. And then, and then there would be a kind of issue as to, you know, what kind of reprisals, what kind of punishments are there from the Germans? And also gradually people started to realise that although on a kind of individual level, the people they were dealing with were maybe, you know, were not the kind of monsters that they were expecting, that ultimately their their sort of power only went so far. So the local commandant might make a promise about something. So for example, when some of these British soldiers were were hiding out on the island because they they'd ended up getting stuck there. He offered an amnesty saying, look, if they turn themselves in, they won't be shot, which is what would have happened. They'll be classed as prisoners of war. They'll be sent to a camp and anyone who has sheltered them won't be punished. You know, we'll kind of, we'll, we'll sort of, you know, forget about it. All they have to do is hand themselves in. We can send them off to a prisoner of war camp and forget about it. Um, they did hand themselves in and then a whole series of arrests started being made. Their families were thrown into prison and it became this kind of issue that really went above of the heads of the local commandant who had made this promise and you know it was sort of getting all the way back to berlin basically to make the decision well you know these these guys you, you know probably should be executed and who knows maybe the rest of their family should be executed for sheltering them and so on so so sort of situations like that kind of destroy that trust that has been built up you know in, in the case of the channel islands by people on both sides because they realize that actually these kind of it doesn't take much. It doesn't take much to happen to kind of sort of make a chink in that in that armour, in a sense, of the kind of civilised, you know, reasonable occupation and to realise that beneath that is something quite potentially quite nasty that can kind of come out at any moment. I think this is partly because, well, there's lots of reasons why this happens, but I can see exactly what you're saying. There's two parts to this, which is that fundamentally, well, three parts to it. Fundamentally, you do have one population of one particular group being occupied by another population or another particular mm. group. So like you said, mm. there's always going to be tension, especially when certain things flare up. But also you have people who value their freedom. And mm. this is something that comes through in Deep Space Nine, especially when like Odo's talking to the female um, changeling in the mu much later episodes of this, of this story. He, she sort of says, well, you know, the solids, they value their freedom. We're going to have to break them of that. Um, yeah. And that's really around the time where Odo starts waking up to the fact that he's been sort of letting the resistance down and everything. But we'll get into that a bit more but later on. But people do value their freedom. And even just the mm. perception of the idea that there is, I mean, presumably there were, you know, regional governments in the Channel Islands that mm. had laws and legislation. But people would have chosen those governments democratically and they would have been exercising their freedoms in order to do that. And the idea that there is another force that's come in are people who are different than you, speak a different language, have a different culture, who are going to actually curtail your freedom, even in a small way. It sort of it grinds against you day after day and it can really, in the end, actually make you very indignant and actually produce a lot of resentment. But also, mm. in linking, linking this with Deep Space Nine... So several things that you mentioned that were, I thought were, was really interesting was, which is that about Dukat. I mean, Damar, like you said, Damar would like a return to the old occupation where the Bajorans were under the thumb of, of the Cardassians. Damar is at, at this stage in Deep Space Nine. He changes later on, as we know in the series. At this period in Deep Space Nine, he is essentially pretty much a racist. I mean, he doesn't mm. like the Bajorans. He really despises the Jem'Hadar. He's even in favour of 
of like poisoning Ketrasol White to sort of mm. rid the Cardassians of, of, of a problem of like sort of a Jem'Hadar revolt. But Descartes is a very different kind of person. Descartes, like you said, has this idea where he sees himself as this benevolent person. I mean, he, he essentially, he's like the anti-Cisco. Mm. Descartes thinks that he's the hero of Star Trek Deep Space mm. Nine, you know, which makes him such a good villain because he doesn't see himself as a villain. He sees himself as he's the hero. And somewhere out there, you know, there's an alternative universe where <laughs> Deep Space Nine is all about Descartes, you know, and Descartes is the, is the emissary. And he wants him, wants yeah. to be the emissary, really, actually, in the end of it all, doesn't he? But the, yeah. Yeah. the, the thing that really strikes me about Descartes is despite the fact that he's, you know, trying to be benevolent or he tries to sort of put on the show of being benevolent, you know, that he can grant mercy if he feels like it, that kind of thing. It's all about ego with him, like you said. Mm. And, He's got this sense of superiority and he does feel that he's superior to the Bajorans. And in a mm. way, the Nazis invading Europe was all about mm. superiority. Why would you invade someone else, invade someone else's country in their land if you didn't feel like you could rule them better than they can rule themselves? And that, mm. that level of superiority, that, that belief that you are the stronger, better race or the stronger, better group means the group that you're occupying are the weaker, less worthy, mm. less able group. Mm. And that, that just breeds inequality and systems where there is an inequality, you know, where one group is stronger than the other, one group's a majority, one group's a minority, all that kind of thing. Those systems of inequality almost always produce conflict and division. So there is no way that Descartes or the Dominion could ever run the station and occupy the station and occupy that space or occupy Bajor and do it fairly and be like a soft occupation is not a hard occupation, but mm. there's nothing really soft about it. You know, soft is kind of like a, uh, a comparative term that we're using, but it's mm. not an mm. actual good descriptive term because it is about creeping mm. authoritarianism. And it's the same thing with the Germans occupying the Channel Islands. I mean, and even if the Germans had invaded Britain, mainland Britain, they could never mm. have occupied mainland Britain without, I think, a considerable amount of violence and strife. Because yeah. as they couldn't occupy Poland without human rights abuses, as they couldn't occupy mm. France without a strong resistance, because mm. people don't want to be fe don't want to be told they're inferior, and they don't want to be told no. what to do, and they don't want their freedoms curtailed. No, well, exactly, and I mean, you know, it's interesting. You you're talking about Descartes. I mean, what does Descartes want? He wants a statue. You know, he want he wants the Bajorans to recognise him as this kind of man of destiny who who you know, they look up to, he, he wants their kind of admiration. He wants something that he's never going to get. I mean, he, Descartes is very deluded aside from anything else. But I suppose it's kind of interesting thinking about, the, you know, the occupiers. In a way, Demar is the only one who is honest uh, and straightforward. I mean, Demar, it's pretty clear what he thinks on things. His position is fairly kind of straightforward. I mean, Descartes is kind of wrapped up in this whole sort of ego fantasy. Wayun, you just don't really know, you can't, trust him as far as you can throw him you know you don't really know whether he means anything that he says he's a kind of he's a schemer he is a kind of ultimate pr man he's very sort of slippery you know to begin with he's he says this thing about it's important to him that they that they keep their word with bajor because they want to prove that they can be trusted by the end of that arc he say he and Descartes are arguing he's saying well when we get to earth we exterminate the population you know that's obvious we kill everyone so he sort of comes across as the kind of softer gentler more 
sort of reasonable guy. But in fact, he's the one who's prepared to go the furthest in terms of, you know, the most appalling abuses and so on. And it's interesting, he reminds me slightly, there are a couple of characters that I came across, particularly reading the memoirs of some of the kind of higher up uh, people in the Channel Islands, because the people that I interviewed were, you know, sort of ordinary people living their lives on the ground, really. But a lot of the people who, you know, were in charge at the time did write their own memoirs and wrote their own accounts and, and so on. And, and one of them that's particularly interesting is a guy called Ambrose Sherwell, who ended up as the, he was the Attorney General of Guernsey, and he basically ended up as the sort of de facto president of Guernsey uh, to begin with at the beginning of the occupation. And he was very much of the opinion that it was important to work with the Germans. He felt he got on very well with them. He felt that, you know, he, he liked them, that they liked him. And I think in some ways he was kind of taken in by some of them. There's a guy called Dr. Maas, who was one of the German, he was the sort of German interpreter for the commandant. The commandant was, a, to begin with, was a little bit brusque, a little bit sort of standoffish. But this guy, Dr. Maas, had trained in medicine in England, you know, spoke fluent English, was good looking, handsome, sort of charming guy. And I think Sherwell was slightly taken in by him because he thought, oh, well, this, this, this seems like a, a nice guy. I can deal with him. And there's quite an interesting moment in his, in his uh, memoirs where he describes when this kind of when the sort of proverbial hit the fan about these these guys who were undercover and Sherwell was actually involved in trying to find a way for them to surrender themselves to the Germans without being shot as spies which involved sourcing uniforms for them so that they could because they had come undercover they weren't in uniform which meant that they weren't entitled to be treated as prisoners of war they would be executed as spies but he managed to find some old uniforms from the first world war for them managed to sort of uh, broker all of this secretly and then he had to ring dr mass uh, and say basically oh these you know these you know i know you've got this amnesty these two english soldiers have, have turned up on my doorstep and he describes this fascinating conversation with the german where clearly dr mass who has been represented as almost his friend as this guy who gets on really well with is you know just gently probing him just gently you know digging at the story that he's telling and almost completely traps him because everything is so casual and so kind of laid back and so you know like oh yes of course these these english soldiers yeah of course you know bring them in oh you you know but uh when did they come to your house you know what were they you know what were they wearing and all these sort of questions and Sherwell inadvertently almost puts his foot in it and tells him this story about how they're, they're wearing the uniforms and he says what so they they walked all the way from the beach to your house wearing british army uniforms and, and no one spotted them and then he kind of panics and he says no 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 i didn't mean that of course no 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 they they had their uniforms with them but they they changed into some civilian clothes for the walk and so on and it's just kind of clear that he this german is kind of running rings around him do you know what i mean he's he's making him think that he's his friend and actually he is is just kind of manipulating him in a sense and kind of prodding him and prodding him and waiting for him to destroy himself in a way by revealing something that he shouldn't and i suppose with wayun you definitely get that sense of someone who is very smooth very kind of calm very kind of measured but is secretly you know there's definitely an agenda he's not your friend and uh you know you're a fool if you if you think for a second that he is i mean the way he talks to jake cisco in that first episode he's very polite he's very nice to him he's very kind of you know amiable but you know we know that that's just that's just a performance in a sense it's it's a complete fantasy character that he's projecting in a way. 
his it's the way he does with Kira too he's very at the beginning uh, very charming you know he sort of says stuff like you know it's it's fantastic that the Bajorans are coming back to the station you know he even says something ridiculous like the sound of laughing children you know ringing through the promenade and you're thinking what and then later on he when when obviously they have Rom imprisoned he shuts the conversation down completely when Kira tries to, to to argue for Rom's life, tries to get Rom released. And he's like, no, Rom, like, no way. Rom's going to be executed, basically. He also changes and switches every time the founders are mentioned, which I think is really interesting. So, you know, he's all smiles and he's and he's uh, sort of seems quite gentle and sweet and everything until somebody criticizes the founders. And then his face changes almost immediately. And no, the founders are gods and they are the ultimate leaders and they're the ultimate people at the top and you can't criticize the founders and he will do anything for the founders. He will do anything. They are his gods. So he will, if, if the female changeling, uh, you know, ordered him to execute everyone in the entire station, he would do it and he have no problem. He'd, he'd execute those children he was just talking about in earlier episodes. <laughs> so you're right about that. I think it's that idea that you know, for a moment there, I thought we'd made a connection, but no, we really are on opposite sides of this war. And even though we are thrown together by these circumstances, you are the occupier and I'm the occupied. And when it comes down to it, you'll have no hesitation about, I guess, betraying me in some way, which is kind of what you're talking about in this situation in the Channel Islands. One of the things I thought we could, we could talk about um, next is the different approaches to resistance, because you have mentioned that there was resistance on the Channel Islands. I know it wasn't the same kind of resistance as the famous resistance in France uh, during the Nazi occupation of France. But there's been a lot of interesting debate in this story arc between Kira and Odo and what that sort of resistance means and what that kind of resistance looks like and what 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 they should be resisting and how they should be resisting. Also, there's also later on uh, Quark actually ending up being part of the resistance and also even Zial. And I wondered how, how do these characters and the way they resist the occupation uh, in Deep Space Nine, how does that reflect in, in the Channel Islands? Yeah, I mean, I think it's very interesting. Certainly, I think a lot of those debates between, you, you're right, we, we talked a little bit about humanitarian resistance in our um, episode on Anne Frank. I was talking a little bit about some of the things that happened in the Channel Islands then. I mean, I, I think, you know, you've got this dynamic initially between Odo and Kira representing these two almost sort of diametrically opposed attitudes. Once Kira has kind of woken up, I mean, I think that in itself is really fascinating. I think, you know, my favourite episode of all these episodes is Rocks and Shells, which is the one where Kira kind of has this epiphany in a sense that, you know, that she has, she has kind of been seduced by this soft occupation in a way. She's kind of gone away, gone along with it. And it takes that Vedic killing herself to make her see that actually she needs to pick a side. You know, Odo, on the other hand, very much... Uh, in this kind of Sherwell role of, you, you know, buffering of kind of, of, of trying to keep things on the, you know, on the level, trying to keep things kind of ticking over, trying to protect the inhabitants of the station by not causing trouble. And I think that kind of dynamic and that kind of debate plays out in a really interesting way. And then you've got characters who you wouldn't really expect to be getting involved in all this. So yeah, you, you mentioned Quark, but also Rom. I mean, cause, you know, you have their, 
a character who we don't think of as particularly heroic. You know, he's a bit of a comedy character. He's a bit of a fool. He generally is presented as a bit kind of cowardly. I mean, I know he's come into himself more by this point, but he's he's not a kind of um, Starfleet hero. And yet he's the one who gets this kind of great speech when he's, you know, he's sent to prison and he basically says, you know, I'm willing to die for this. I'm willing to, to face the music. I'll, I'll be executed. You know, I did the right thing. You know, he, he is surprisingly inspiring, Rom, actually. More so in a way than, you know, obviously Kira's inspiring in a sense, but we know she's a resistance fighter. She's going to fight. She's going to do that. That's kind of in her, in her nature. You know, the Starfleet people, we know they're going to fight. They're going to risk their lives and so on. But the extent to which Rom, as just a kind of ordinary civilian, is willing to lay his life down, you know, or, or put his life on the line for something that he believes in is, you know, is very touching and is quite inspiring. And it does remind me in some ways of of, you know, people in the Channel Islands and elsewhere in Europe as well who got involved in resistance movements who were not. I mean, you brought this up last time we sort of touched on this subject about the associate of Kira's who was she a cleaner or something? I can't remember what the, what, what the circumstances were. But anyway, she was just feeding a little bit of information to the resistance. She wasn't really doing very much and she ends up being killed for it. Uh, and, you know, that sense that you can kind of get sucked into these situations where you're presented with a choice, you know, do you uh, close your eyes to what's happening? Do you kind of look the other way? Or do you just say, I can't go along with this, I'm going to have to act. I might not have ever thought of myself as a hero. But, you know, if, if that's what's required, then that's what's going to happen, which is what we get with Quark and Zial at the end, you know, everyone else is arrested. And it's left to them to, to save the day Two very unlikely you know, resistance operatives. There's a great quote. I was just uh, looking today in preparation for this at the Deep Space Nine Companion. And there's a great quote from Armin Shimmerman where he talks about the way that Quark kind of ended up in that role uh, in that episode. I'll just, um, I'll, I'll read it out to you now. So what Armin Shimmerman says about it is, he's a reluctant hero. It's not in his nature to do it, but his brother's very close to him. And sooner or later, you have to take a stand. That's what oppression does to people. It forces them to become accidental heroes. I mean, it's easy for a Starfleet person to be a hero. It's what they do. But my character isn't bred for it. It's something he has to be educated to do. And it's much harder for him. And I think that's definitely true. And that's certainly something that, you know, that, that happened in the Channel Islands. You know, we talked in that previous episode when we talked about Anne Frank, about this woman, Louisa Gould in Jersey, who ended up sheltering this Russian worker who'd escaped from his camp. And she ended up, you know, being sent to the gas chambers and, and dying as a result, you know. And people did you know, take terrible risks for the sake of, you know, maybe not resistance in the sense that Kira's doing of like trying to really cause trouble or cause mayhem or whatever. But, you know, in a situation like that, to try and essentially do the right thing, to stand up to, to when, as that Vedic puts it, you know, when something, when you know that something is evil, uh, it's wrong not to act, you, you, you know, just to kind of close your eyes to it is, is not a viable kind of moral decision in a sense. You have to do something, whether that's, active resistance or it's a kind of humanitarian resistance or whatever it is you know you have to be willing to kind of you know risk your safety or whatever to do the right thing and i suppose that's what we see ultimately with quark uh with Seal, you know certainly with rom and obviously in a slightly different way with, with kira and odo i mean ultimately odo switches sides back again uh and saves the day you know he brings his his own security forces in and kind of rescues them at the last minute you know so he does sort of finally he does 
pick a side. But I suppose it's that it's it's that idea that you know in in an occupation like this you can you know you can kind of avoid choosing sides, and that's what's kind of insidious about it. That's what's appealing about it. Someone like Quark who thinks, well, you know, I don't have to take sides. I can keep running my bar. I can serve whoever comes in here. It doesn't matter to me. And then ultimately, you know, discovers well there does come a point where you have to say, you know, kind of you're either with them or against them. And if you're against them, you've got to do something about it. I would argue that actually Odo tries to avoid choosing size as long as possible as well. Because I think I think Odo has a real internal conflict in this story, partly because he's, I mean, one of the big things about his character from the from day one of, of Deep Space Nine is that he's wanted to find out who he was and wanted to find out who his people were and, and he's wanted to belong. And he finds the link very compelling and very attractive and very inviting. So for him, choosing a side against his own people is very difficult. But also at the same time, he spent his entire sentient life with solids, you know, with people who are not shapeshifters. And majority of those people have been Bajorans. And in, in fact, a huge percentage of that has been with Kira. So he's also not wanting to choose a side against the Federation, against the Bajoran people either. I would argue that everybody all the people on the station that end up resisting. I would argue that every one of them, with the exception of maybe Jake, who just seems to want to get involved for the fun of it, I would argue that all of them have something that pushes them into resisting. And I mean, Kira, it was a matter of time. She was going to resist. I mean, she was going to she was going to fight because beneath all of the polite smiles and everything, she's actually a warrior. She's not a diplomat. You know, she's, she, she's not a sycophant. She, she lives by her own personal code. And even if her expressing that personal code in the first few episodes is actually more subtle, there's nothing more insulting or offensive to her than than the word collaborator. And essentially, that's what the, what Vedic Yasim basically calls her. She calls her apologist, which is like another word really for kind of like for a collaborator. So, so you know, Sakira is going to turn at some point. And as that episode, like you said, that's one of the best episodes actually of the whole of the whole story, Rocks and Shoals. As as that episode passes time, as it goes goes through her her like basically her transformation, she gets more and more dishevelled. Um, you'll notice that her hair is more dishevelled, and she looks tired, more tired. And it starts with her waking up at the beginning of the episode, and it starts with her waking up at the end of the episode. And like the second scene that we, the second time we see her waking up, she's actually actually really changed her view of the dominion and her view of the occupation because of Vedic Yassim's like suicidal protest basically but it, it, it that's the, the Vedic is the person that propels her into actually resisting I would say that Rom being imprisoned and well even before that actually you're right the idea of the mines coming down the fact that Quark has got Damar drunk and Damar has let loose the, you know, let slip basically that he's going to deactivate the mines and that basically the Alpha Quadrant is going to be overrun with Dominion forces. That's the thing that propels Quark into sort of almost accidentally, inadvertently becoming a resistance fighter because he suddenly has that realization. I think Quark has this idea in his head that Dominion is going to change, you know, the Dominion occupation is going to end, occupations come and go. He thinks the Federation will be back maybe underneath it all but then once he realizes that it's quite possible the federation will lose the war because the mines are going to be deactivated then he has a sudden change of heart rom is kind of almost immediately willing to resist from the beginning and i would say that odo really changes because of kira because at this point he's in love with kira at this point he knows that his feelings 
are known by Kira, but not necessarily reciprocated because she seems pretty uncomfortable right at the beginning of the story about, about his feelings about her. And so almost, almost everything that he does in this storyline is either through an intense desire to be with his people or an intense desire to keep Kira safe. He doesn't really, I know he, he sort of mentions the Bajoran people, but I don't think he actually cares hugely that much about the Bajoran people or the non-aggression pact or the Cardassians, maybe about law and order on the station. But for the first first few months, he doesn't have any deputies. So are we just supposed to think that Odo sits alone in his, in his office for three months without anything to do? You know, so he seems pretty content to just sit around and do nothing. And he has to kind of be pushed a little bit to have a seat on the council which is another interesting thing we can talk about. But he almost immediately decides to become involved in the resistance because Kira says, I have to do this and don't make me fight you. I will fight you if I have to, but I don't want to fight you. And he sort of sees that she's going to do it. And the only way he can really take care of her or keep her safe or not fight her is to actually get into it with her. And then later on, when he's sort of been seduced by the female shapeshifter, the only reason he sort of gets back into the resistance is when he starts to realise that the solids are going to have their freedoms broken. You know, they're going to have the the desire to be free broken out of them, but also because Kira's life's going to be in danger. He's, he really wakes up when the female shapeshifter's like, we're just going to arrest her and execute her. And he's like, what? No. So for Odo, I'm not sure really it is a moral point. I mean, maybe it is a little bit because he's concerned about about, you know, when they're standing up on the promenade and they're looking at everybody and the female shapeshifter says that incredibly arrogant, superior thing about how the solids are so limited, you know, their little lives. Almost seeing, like, everyone else in the station is kind of like ants that she can crush because uh, she's, she's such a superior being. So maybe there is a little bit of a moral point there because he seems quite alarmed and disturbed by that. But I think for Odo, a, a lot of this is about his own desires, really. Yeah. Well, it's interesting as well. I mean, one of the other things that I found in the Deep Space Nine companion is they talk about something that I hadn't realised, which was the original plan was much more extreme. It was that Odo was going to arrest Rom himself. And that basically the idea was that the effect of the link was having, it was sort of exaggerating his kind of obsession with order and with kind of, you know, kind of stilling the sort of chaos of everything. And so, so it was much more this sort of theme of like the resistance were making chaos and trouble and so on. I mean, when you mentioned Odo sitting alone in his, in his office, I suppose at least under Cardassian occupation, there probably wasn't much crime going on on Deep Space Nine. They probably didn't, didn't need much of that kind of thing. And then they basically just felt they couldn't, they, they, they couldn't write it. They couldn't make it believable in a sense that Odo would, you, you know, would do something so sort of as awful as that. And the, the compromise, as they put it, was to make it a sin of omission rather than a sin of commission. I think that's kind of interesting as well, because, you, you know, there were examples, again, say in the Channel Islands with the island governments of, you know, to a lot of turning a blind eye, you know, turning a blind eye to, say, uh, laws that were passed that were repressive to Jewish people and that, you know, in the end ended up resulting in a handful of Jewish people dying. You know, things like that where... Most of, I mean, to go back to Ambrose Sherwell in Guernsey, he was, while he was in this situation trying to negotiate for the safety of these soldiers, the Germans kind of handed him a piece of legislation and basically said, look, you know, we need, you need, we need you to kind of ratify this and take it, put it through the court, the local court to make it the law on the island that was all about registering the Jews. And, you know, what he wrote in his memoirs, and I don't think there's any reason to think that it's not true, although obviously he has a vested interest in saying it, is that he, you know, partly he was sort of 
distracted by the fact that he was trying to save these two young men's lives and trying to kind of stay on the right side of the Germans. And partly he believed that the Jews that were living in the island had already left because most of the Jews had left during the evacuation. And as it turned out, there were a handful who, who weren't able to evacuate because uh, for legal reasons, they were stuck there and ended up stuck under occupation but they weren't you know he, he wasn't really aware of them so he thought it was kind of purely hypothetical that he was agreeing to these laws that he could see were totally unjust and, and racist and awful but he said basically so he went to the royal court and he said to his colleagues there look i want to you know push this law through that you know i want to do it because i think it's important that we stay on the right side of the germans it's not going to affect anyone you you know it's a completely sort of moot point you know, basically made that case, made very much the kind of Odo case of like the, the le- causing the least trouble or whatever. And only one uh, member of the island parliament effectively spoke against it and gave this sort of big, you know, speech of denunciation, basically saying this is appalling. This is the worst kind of, you know, awful, racist, evil ideology. And Sherwell said, that, you know, sitting there listening to him, he felt you know, a kind of measure of shame because he knew that what this guy was saying was right. Morally speaking, you know, it was true. But at the same time, he'd made this decision, you know, that he thought A, was viable because it wouldn't affect anyone and B, was justified by expediency because it was going to make things easier with the Germans. In fact, you know, it turned out uh, he was wrong. There were this handful of Jews left in the islands and they ended up going uh, to the concentration camps and dying as a result. So, you know, obviously there were terrible consequences from that decision, but that's not quite an act of omission. But I suppose the extent to which a lot of it hinged on the local governments and so on not objecting to things that the Germans were doing, that is not a million miles away from that. You, you know, they could they could probably have done more to make an issue about certain things. And it, they may well have gone forward anyway. But, you know, and the, and the argument they would make is, well, if the Germans want to do something, they're going to force it to happen, whatever we do. And if we stage a protest over it, then they may just get rid of us altogether. Uh, and at least now we have some influence, we can kind of moderate things a little bit. But at the same time, they were in this position where, you know, they're not necessarily doing the evil things themselves, but they're kind of, to some extent, turning a blind eye to them. I guess part of the problem is that it's not really a mission, is it? But but I guess part of the problem is that it, you don't have to do something. You don't have to pass a law. You know, you don't ha- or you don't have to make a ruling. You don't actually have to be active um, on behalf of the occupiers in order to do damage. You can just literally be passive, and that's kind of what Odo is like at the end. And I guess in a way, it's kind of what Sherwell was doing, just sort of sitting there, you know, letting this thing happen. I mean, because it's quite clear. And when Kira goes and confronts him towards the end of the end of the story that he, you know, and he's all kind of high from his being in the link and everything. And, you know, he sort of lost track of time and he, he sort of started to get that kind of godlike superior complex that the other founders have. So he's starting to actually become a true founder. He's changing from a changeling into a founder. But she does say, she says, billions of people are going to die. Don't you care? And he sort of doesn't really at that point, you know, I mean, but he's not, he's not doing anything actively to make those billions of people die. But by being inactive, he is going to let those billions of people die. And that, that is basically like not preventing the, the Cardassians from deactivating the mines. And when the mines are deactivated, in come all the Dominion forces from, you know, the other quadrant. And then, you know, the Alpha Quadrant, I mean, the Alpha Quadrant's filled with species of, of aliens and filled with populations and worlds and, you know, colonies and everything. So that's a huge number of people who whose lives and freedoms are at risk. So 
it is it is a really big deal. I think by not doing something sometimes can be as worse as doing something destructive because if you sit by and you watch your Jewish neighbours get hauled away and you don't say anything, you don't do anything, then aren't you kind of as complicit as someone who actually took them away and put them in a camp? I mean, you're kind of almost as guilty. I mean, maybe in that situation, you can actually do anything but stand up and say, stop. And maybe you saying stop isn't going to change anything. But at least you tried, you know. And one of the things that really struck me as interesting and in what you're talking about here with this legislation about or this this decree to round up the Jews is how how long did Sherwell think that the war was going to go on for? I mean, he, maybe he thought this was a temporary measure, just get along with the Germans for now, because eventually Britain will come and free us and Britain will win the war. And I guess you have to believe that your country is going to win the war, because if you don't believe it, how can you fight and you must give up hope. But if Britain lost the war, then that legislation would end up, I mean, if there were any Jewish people in the Channel Islands, or which there were, you know, like you said, and they were taken off the camps, or there are any Jewish people on the mainland Britain, then it's going to have a very real effect. And it's a similar thing with like the Dominion on the station. You know, Oda's like, we'll keep the peace, we'll keep the peace, we don't want to cause too much trouble. But what if the occupation of, of DS9 like never ends? You know, what if like the Federation don't win the war, which is what Kira starts saying, the Federation are losing the war and we're sitting here like doing nothing to keep the peace. I mean, how long is the non-aggression pact really going to last with the Dominion when the Cardassians have defeated the Federation? You know, the Cardassians are going to come back and they're going to enslave the entire population of Bajor. And Dukat makes it clear that he wants the entire Alpha Quadrant. And he wants Cardassia to have the entire Alpha Quadrant. I mean, presumably the Cardassians and the Dominion would start fighting amongst each other. But, I mean, the the wait and see, sit here and do nothing sort of approach sort of assumes that somebody else, somewhere else, is fighting for your freedom. But if those people lose, you know, if the British army lose and they don't defeat the Nazis, if the, you know, the Federation lose and they don't defeat the Dominion, then you really are stuck under a long-term occupation and it could be for the rest of your life. And if you're Jewish or if you're Bajoran, it could mean the end of your life. So in a way, this like kind of passive, I'm just going to sit here, not cause too much trouble because I don't want to, I don't want to like make things precarious now. It's like a wait and see policy, but maybe through your waiting and your seeing, you end up actually meaning provoking a long-term occupation. So Odo's approach and Sherwell's approach, I don't think is really, well, I mean, like you said, the Sherwell did a lot of other things too, but the approach is, you're trying to do the best for your citizens in the moment, but there is a long, there is a long-term plan here. So <laughs> on the occupier's mind anyway, at least. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, that their expectations are very different. There's also the fact that you know, you mentioned someone else is fighting for your freedom or whatever. I mean, Kira basically gives that speech, doesn't she? She, you know, she says other people are fighting and dying and I'm doing nothing. I'm writing reports for the people. He says, she says, I even write reports for the murderers who run this station. You know, she is kind of, is morally compromised, but there's also that great frustration, which builds the longer the occupation, you know, the longer an occupation goes on. And that's something that absolutely was the case in the Channel Islands. You know, I spoke to a guy who, you know, who, when the, war started was, you know, sort of young teenager, but gradually became, because it went on for five years, the occupation, you know, came of age where he would be signing up for the army, he would be going off to fight. And, you know, for him, there was this immense frustration that he wanted to be, you know, flying Spitfires or, you, you know, taking part in D-Day or something. He didn't want to be stuck on an island where the most he could do was 
chalk graffiti on a wall or kind of, you know, you cause kind of minor trouble in a sense. And I think that that kind of is sort of soul destroying in itself, you know, and, and we see that with Kira. She has really kind of lost herself in a sense. I mean, the, the, another account that I read was about someone whose father was really struggling with, you know, he'd fought in the First World War. He really wanted to fight in this war in a sense and he couldn't. And so he had all this kind of resentment and anger under the surface towards the Germans because he just, you know, he wanted to be fighting them. He didn't want to be making friends with them in a sense. And I suppose that kind of, it compromises your sense of identity. It compromises your sense of who you are and, and your values in a sense to be asked to, I mean, effectively what they're being asked to do is, you know, don't fight back now, wait it out. As you say, you, you know, things will get better. Just don't get involved. And that's very difficult, you know, especially as time goes on. And when you look at this idea of sort of, you know, do you, do you step out and say anything or do you kind of just let things pass? I mean, one of the interesting things about the occupation is that as it went on, you know, they, they, you weren't allowed to have, the, I mean, political protest was banned. And, you know, in terms of the, the Vedic and Deep Space Nine, other forms of, you, you know, religious, for example, the Salvation Army was banned. But you did have, you know, in particular, there was one member of the Salvation Army who was a woman who defied the ban and went out preaching in the, you know, in the marketplace anyway, sort of preaching against the occupation, very much like that Vedic is doing and ended up in prison. And then, I mean, the, they, the regime didn't kill her, but the time she spent in prison made her very ill. And as a result, she died only a couple of months after she was released. So, you know, again, she kind of suffered terribly as a result of speaking out. But there were instances where these kind of almost sort of spontaneous protests would kind of emerge. Um, and they weren't, you know, they weren't violent. They weren't, people weren't rioting in the streets, if you know what I mean. But there were moments where people would come together and just sort of gather and make their feelings clear on something. So one of the big examples was in 1942, the British, 2000 British born, you know, like born on the mainland, on the British mainland born Channel Islanders were deported to camps in, on the continent. And the Germans had this idea that by sort of separating out the, the, the mainlander Channel Islanders from the kind of native Channel Islanders whose families had lived there for years, they would sort of weaken the Channel Islands allegiance to, to mainland Britain. In fact, the opposite happened. You know, everyone was, was incensed by this. You know, it, it was a complete betrayal of the terms that, that when the occupiers, when they arrived, you know, they, they issued this set of rules and they said, you know, basically, as long as you respect the rules, we will respect your lives and your kind of, you know, your, your, your right to live here and your property and all these sorts of things. And it was a complete betrayal of that. And so what happened was, you know, a massive number of islanders who were not being deported came out onto the streets, came to help, you know, were giving sandwiches to the people who were leaving, were lining the streets, singing kind of patriotic songs, were kind of, you know, doing what they could do without it being classed as, you know, an actual protest to make it clear that they were on the side of the people who were being deported and that they weren't, they weren't just going to quietly kind of, you know, turn a blind eye to it. And, and again, um, about a year later, when the Germans organised, um, they organised these funerals for some British sailors who had, uh, had had died at sea and had washed up on the islands. And the, the Germans weren't quite sure what to do about it. And in the end, they decided to organise this funeral, which would again be a sort of almost a performance of this kind of model attitude where the Germans were extremely respectful. You know, they fired a salute over the graves. They kind of talked about 
how the men had, you know, they might be the enemy, but they'd clearly done their duty to their country and all these sorts of things, all these sort of noble sentiments. 5,000 people turned up at this funeral and the Germans were quite anxious about it because basically, you know, if they had rioted or something like that, even though the Germans were the ones with the guns, that number of people gathering in one place spontaneously was quite dangerous. And there was this kind of real atmosphere of the local people were not taken in by this performance of, you know, we can be decent people and look how, look how well we're treating your dead and how respectful we are of them. You know, I spoke to one woman, she felt it's like stabbing someone in the back and then kissing them better afterwards. She said she was just raging inside at watching this kind of hypocritical display of basically, you know, the enemy pretending to be these kind of, this sort of over the top decency in a way. And so what she said was, you know, the atmosphere then was electric. It could have, it could have tipped over into something else. And after that, the Germans basically made sure that, you, you know, nothing like that would ever happen again. There would never be a, uh, a situation where that number of people could gather, even, you know, peacefully for something like a funeral, because they realized that that kind of years of resentment by that point that people were feeling and weren't allowed to give voice to, you know, was in itself quite dangerous. There was there was something sort of waiting to spill over at some point. Well, I suppose that the sailors wouldn't have died if there was no war, right? Yeah, and, of course. And of at course. this point, yeah. Germany's aggression is one of the things that started the war. So for a lot of people on the Channel Islands, it must have seemed, yeah, really massively hypocritical to... Well, it, to have a germ like a German or an occupying occupied forced mm. organized funeral for these these men who were essentially dead because of the fact that they were in this conflict. I mean, and well, also they were you know dead because their ships had been blown up by Germans. Yeah, I mean, it's, exactly. it's more. You do know what I mean? It's it's more and, and also not far away. You know, I mean, the reason they washed up is that they were, you know, this was all happening in the Channel, so it was. You know, a real reminder, I suppose. I suppose part of it for the local people, it was a reminder that, yes, the Germans might be polite and friendly and so on, but they are killing our, you know, our fellow countrymen in a way. And you, you can't really forget that. So one of the things that you mentioned was how polite and charming the Germans were trying to be on the Channel Islands. So like buying ice cream for children. And I mean, this sort of misguided attempt to try and organise um, a funeral for these poor sailors. One of the things I thought was really interesting that you mentioned and you talk about is jerry bags. So jerry bags is kind of like a derogative term as far as I can tell, right? For uh, yeah, Channel absolutely. Island women um, who ha had affairs with or um, had relationships with occupying German soldiers. And I thought this was quite interesting because it kind of contrasts and sort of links with the character of Zial, who is essentially mm. a child of an occupation. She's half Bajoran, she's half Cardassian. Father is Ducat. Ducat, as we well know, had also an affair with Kira's mother, a long-standing affair with Kira's mother. And there's kind of a weird situation in these kind of relationships because there's an imbalance of power, really, isn't there? There's like a power dynamic that's not really very equal because one half of the relationship is an occupying part of an occupying force, and the other half of the relationship is part of the group that's being occupied. So t tell me a little bit about the situation at Channel Islands in terms of like, tell me about the relationships between Channel Island women and the German soldiers. And what has, what has, what's been the result of that? Like children who've been born as affairs. Yeah. I mean, it's a very big topic. And I would say of, of all the topics that I dealt with in researching this book, it's the one that even today, you know, almost 80 years later is the most sensitive. People are very, 
wary of talking about it that people will make sort of vague remarks but uh it, it did happen quite a lot i mean a lot of local women i think did have relationships with the germans of various kinds the, the idea of the jerry bag as this sort of derogatory stereotype was very much tied up with this idea that women were doing it in order to get more food in order to get uh you know lipstick and silk stockings that the soldiers could buy in France in order to kind of improve their quality of life. They were sort of selling out their country in order to improve their quality of life. There were, of course, people who genuinely just fell in love, young people particularly, who met a German. You know, the local men were generally gone. They, they did get to know them quite well because they saw a lot of them and, you know, genuinely fell in love with them. And in a handful, a very small, but a handful of cases ended up getting married and, you know, those marriages lasted for the rest of their lives. But definitely the kind of stereotype of the jerry bag was this very kind of offensive thing which we see you know certainly in the in kind of Ziel's background and the kind of shame around her character we see also in you know the shame around Kira's mother having this relationship with Descartes and whether it was and, and whether it was a kind of you know totally sort of coercive relationship or whether it was something more voluntary on Kira's mother's part is I suppose the sort of question that that episode wrongs darker than death or night revolves around to an extent but I mean certainly when you had imbalances of power as you did under occupation that sort of exacerbated it i mean a lot of women that i spoke to only one woman that i spoke to actually admitted to me that she had a relationship with a german but nearly all of them who were say you know late teens onwards during the war had stories of rebuffing germans you know getting kind of attention from them in the street getting them kind of sidling up and trying to talk to them and, and you know it was a difficult situation you couldn't be too rude to them because you you know they could throw you in jail or something you know if, if you kind of reacted too hostilely to that kind of attention it, it would be awkward so you know most of them would say they kind of learned how to sort of change the subject or say they had to leave or kind of you know get away from them in a sense but particularly when the germans are high up i mean there's that really creepy scene in i think it must be is it in sons and daughters where ducat is kind of coming on to kira in his office and you, oh no you, you i, th know, I think she's she i think it's before then i think it's actually i think sons and is daughters it? is when he sends her the dress i think I th you're right sons and daughters i think is it's very early on that he comes on to her in his office maybe it's in a time to stand then well anyway so there's that creepy there's the creepy scene in the office where he's sort of and she has that line about you know you're not going to have this relationship with me and he says oh we already do which is even more freaky when you know what's been going on in the past with, with her mother. But, um, <laughs> you know, there's that interesting sort of dynamic there, though. I mean, I, I spoke to a woman who, um, one of the very high-ranking Germans, who was called Baron von Aufsess, and he was the head of the Feldkommandantur in Jersey, which was the kind of, not the military administration, but the kind of civil administration that the Germans were running. So he was in charge of the kind of more... Uh, like the more sort of practical day-to-day -day kind of things rather than the sort of military defences. But so he was very high up, uh, very charming, you know, good-looking guy in his 30s. Uh, I mean, he was married. Uh, he had a wife uh, in Germany, but he was, you know, a terrible flirt and kind of having affairs all over the shop in um, in Jersey. And this woman basically described, he came to her farm for some reason because he needed to talk to her father, who's the farmer, about something and, and spotted this, you know, 17, 18 year old girl or something and very obviously was interested in her and was trying to get her to come to this get her to come to a German dance with him I think and she was basically trying to say no and you, you know I think he he touched her hand at one point and she sort of went went away and washed her hand and he sort of noticed that she'd done that and he and he had this line he said to her is it me or my uniform that you don't like and she sort of said well yeah you know it's the uniform and he 
so he was sort of but there was a kind of tension over whether he would he accept her rebuffing him or not because he's obviously someone with a lot of power and in the end her father came in and said to him you know you have to understand i don't know maybe you have a sister and back home in germany and if a british soldier was you know trying to ask your sister to go to the dance maybe you'd feel the same way and in the end he sort of basically got the message and gave up and left but you know there's that real kind of tension in a situation like that there's here's this guy yeah he's very sort of charming and, and affable and so on but he's he's laying it on quite thick and no one exactly wants to defy him because he's you know one of the top guys in charge I mean, it's a bit like you see with the kind of whole weinstein thing or you know any of these kind of abuses of of power in hollywood you know where you have a situation where a man has that kind of power like that whether it's the power to make your career or destroy it or the power to effectively ruin your life throw you in prison you know who knows what they might do puts those women in a very difficult awkward situation and that kind of dynamic which is kind of what Ducat is trying in some ways on Kira it doesn't really work on Kira because she's so she's such a kind of tough character she's not gonna and, and she's gonna kind of see through his bullshit and kind of challenge him on it she's not really scared of Descartes even though he is in charge even though there is this occupation I mean maybe she's protected by the fact that she's representing Bajor but you sort of feel even if she wasn't she's just she, that's that's kind of who she is she's gonna fight back against that kind of thing and, and yeah. call out call it out for what it is but there is definitely that attempt on his part to sort of use his power to uh, and he has this really creepy line he says you know I'm a very patient man I can wait you know this idea that eventually he'll wear her down um, and he's, he says very much in this kind of jerry bag way he says I could make things very pleasant for you you know that idea that like I will you, you know I will make your career I will get you the nylons from you, the, the stockings from France or you know I, I will do all these things to kind of enhance your quality of life as ex which is exactly what he did with her mother we later find out and her mother ended up sort of living the life of Riley to some extent by tagging along with Gold Ducat and and you know that whole sort of element of the story I think is is very interesting in the way that it kind of plays out throughout these episodes I think the thing is that Kira is a soldier, isn't she? So in the case of this example that you're giving of this like 17, 18 year old girl living on a farm, I mean, it's quite possible that she's never been in a situation where a man has come onto her who has that much power to, to control mm. her life you know i'm sure that i mean mm. i'm sure that in the past you know you know seven 18 year old girls were being hassled probably on a regular basis <laughs> but you know i mean maybe not necessarily in a small community like that you know um mm. that where people know each other you might be more she might be more protected but also mm. the, if a channel islander was coming onto her and hassling her she could just basically tell him to to leave and to you know, piss off yeah. but an actual a German soldier, especially a, a senior, senior German soldier or a senior German official, it's a much harder. Mm. Uh, like you said, the balance of power is kind of messed up, isn't it really? But with Kira, I think you're supposed to feel that Kira is so feisty because of all her experience. I mean, she's been fighting the Cardassians since she was like 12 years old. She, and mm. she has come up against big frightening Cardassian, Cardassian men before and she's also had many run-ins with Ducat as well so even though he's got he's in a position of power now she's and she's not really in the same way she's also gone head to head with him in other episodes one of the things that strikes me as interesting is I'm I mean I think you're right when you say that like during the occupation of 
the earlier occupation, I guess we could call it a hard occupation of Bajor, uh, when the Cardassians came in and had labor camps and mines and, you know, were killing huge numbers of um, Bajoran civilians. The issue of, I guess, jerry bags or women being used by un- by occupying men would definitely have been something that we that would have taken place, partly because in earlier an earlier episode, when Odo approaches Kira, this is really early on. I can't remember what the name of the episode is, but it's very early on in the series. Um, and Odo's looking back at a, a crime, that he, one of the first crimes that he investigated on Deep Space Nine. And that's how he first came into right, contact yeah. with Kira. And he approaches her and she's sitting there eating a meal. And he says something like, a pretty lady like you shouldn't be eating alone. Almost as mm. if he's kind of learned that phrase, like he's heard someone say it. And so he's saying it. It's kind of like the phrase that like a hard-boiled like detective would say you know, to a femme mm. fatale. And she sort of says, I don't, I don't do what you're thinking of. Like, I don't do what you're asking. I don't do it for food. I don't do it for money. So she thinks that he's asking for sex. And, and she's very clear that she doesn't, she's, she's not going to do that, which means that she must have been approached for sex by people like to be paid for or in sex in terms of for trading of food or whatever on a regular basis, or at least before. And so I think you get the feeling that there's this kind of exchange of like sex for food, sex for comfort, sex mm. for safety, sex for money going on all the time during the Cardassian occupation of Bajor. And Odo is really shocked. He's kind of horrified. Like, that's not what I meant. That's not what I meant. But it's interesting that that's Kira's first reaction. And and that's one of those things that, you know, is almost endemic in any any situation. I mean, as you say, any kind of power dynamic to some extent, but certainly any kind of occupation situation or any kind of military situation like that. I mean, I the the last book that I wrote, which was about women in the forces, one of the one of the women's stories, and that was quite interesting. She was uh she was in the ATS, the women's army in Britain. She was very anti-German. You, you know, she worked on the ACAT guns, the anti-aircraft guns. So her job was literally shooting German planes down out of the sky. But towards the end of the war, the ACAC uh, unit she was with was kind of disbanded. She ended up being transferred to work uh, in some army stores and she ended up being sent to Germany because, you know, the British were going into Germany and she was sort of providing that kind of support work in Germany and working alongside both, you know, men and women of the British forces and some German civilians. And she realised there, I suppose she sort of realised for the first time that these German women were were women like her, you know, were were ordinary people. And in particular, one of the things she was shocked at was the men she was working with, they would call them bits of frat, frat as in fraternisation, these these German women. And they knew that they were so desperate, you know, they, they didn't have proper clothes, they didn't have proper food, they would sleep with them for a few cigarettes or something, you know, and they could really use these women however they wanted. And and this was to some extent, similar stories did come out of the Channel Islands. I mean, there's a woman who, she was a, a girl, like only about 12, I think, or something, and, and the people were really starving by the end of the war, really desperate for food. And she was out one day um, and she ran into this German with a, a loaf of bread and he offered, he, he held out this bread to her and she thought he was offering it to her. And then he gestured up, you know, up to where his bedroom was and basically made it clear she was going to have to sleep with him if she wanted the bread you know so she screamed and, and ran off home but i mean you know obviously in a situation like that where one group of people is is in such dire straits and depending on the other there's a you know huge power imbalance that is almost it seems inevitably exploited in that way and you know the jerry bags people were very hostile towards them i mean people were you know people even today a lot of the people well the men that i interviewed but some of the women too to be honest you know you could see the 
the rage that they felt towards these women. And I think quite unfairly, to be honest, because they're willing to forgive all sorts of other things that happened during the occupation. They're willing to forgive all sorts of other compromises. But there was this feeling that it was just such a betrayal somehow, you know, sleeping with the enemy was such a betrayal. And, you know, after the war, as happened across Europe, you know, there were girls having their heads shaved. Um, I spoke to a guy who was part of a gang that went around pouring tar over um, women who'd been jerry bags during the war. And, you know, he said to me, he said he could obviously see I was quite shocked by this. He said, oh, you know, it it wasn't hot tar. It didn't hurt them. It was just to teach them a lesson. And then he said, uh, you know, as far as I was concerned, they were the enemy too. And I suppose the, his attitude was he couldn't go around physically abusing Germans, uh, y- you know, but he could kind of get away with physically abusing these women. They became a sort of proxy for all this kind of vicious hatred and vitriol. And I suppose, you know, you do see some of that with Kira in that later episode, talking about her mother and the kind of how difficult it is for her to sort of process you know, what was going on between her mother and Goldicott. And and certainly you're right, you know, Kira is very much like, she's the last person in the world who's going to compromise anything. I mean, she'll, you know, get herself shot in the head for being too rude and and speaking her mind, if you know what I mean, rather than kind of go along with anything at all. Which is why it's so interesting that they, and such a brilliant piece of writing, I think, that in the beginning of this arc, they put her in the position of, you know, Cisco, who's both uh, her commanding officer and her emissary, has told her, you know, you're not going to fight these people, essentially, you're going to go along with it. You know, you have to, Bajor has to sign this pact, everyone has to kind of go along with all this. And, you know, it almost kind of destroys her. I mean, you can see it kind of is really kind of eroding her personality in a way making that kind of compromise you know which arguably is the same thing the jerry bags are are doing you know sort of selling out their principles you know for personal benefits but you know excluding the the many who who may have been having you know who may just have fallen in love with the german soldier because he was the guy who was around and he was nice to her and you know which i think is is somewhat different but they kind of all get tarred with the same brush to some extent. Also, there's always a very interesting dynamic here, which is that, and it's interesting that you should talk about a man condemning women for sleeping with the enemy, because there's almost always this particular thing that I think especially happens with men, where if there is something like this, where there's an abuse of power, it's almost always the victims who end up paying the biggest price, I think. And I think you can see this with Harvey Weinstein, you know, the amount of abuse, criticism or doubting that the women who have been, you know, sexually assaulted or, or harassed have to deal with as victims as opposed to the perpetrators. So in a way, he, I suppose this guy is going around pouring tar because he, you're right, he can't fight the Germans. He's angry at the Germans. But if a woman is being pressured into sleeping with the enemy, and I think in particular, it's a good example to use um, German women. There's a very, very good book, which I would urge anyone to read called uh, a woman in Berlin. And it is a diary written by a woman who uh, survived the war. And it's, the diary is the, the, the year, well, the, basically the year after her, of her life, right after the Russians invade Berlin and basically about her prostituting herself. And it's a true diary and it's published by, it was pu- originally published anonymously because she couldn't reveal her name. And when it came out in Germany, people were horrified. They didn't want to think of like German women like this, you know, that they would willingly prostitute themselves. But she was all around her, the women and girls and elderly women were being like raped and abused by Russian soldiers. And um, she decided one day she'd had enough and that if she was going to be sexually assaulted or raped, she was going to 
go out and find the highest ranking Russian officer she could. And he was going to protect her. So she put on lipstick and she put on the best dress that she'd had. And she was also a journalist. So she had the, the lucky ability to be able to speak Russian. So she was useful to the Russians. And she went out and she found the highest ranking Russian officer she could. And she became his mistress so that she wasn't going to be raped by every other Russian soldier who decided he wanted to, to do that at that time. So, and in a way, do you condemn that woman or do you condemn? the person who has the power who's abusing it. I almost always think that we should perhaps maybe focus less on the fact the victims of, of some sort of in unequal sexual relationship and focus on the actual people who hold the power. And one of the interesting things that I learned about the Channel Islands is how many children were born as a result of these relationships between Germans and Channel Islanders. And that some were accepted by the British, you know, some even still live on the Channel Islands. Some were sort of more accepted by the Germans and the the Germans were only willing to admit to a certain number, but that the British said it was much a higher number. And this really made me think about Zial because, and all the other children born as a result of the occupation of Bajor, because Zial does imply, I mean, one of the reasons why Zial comes back to the station is because Dukat invites her back to the station. You really feel that Dukat invites her back because he wants to uh, influence and and ha- and have power over Kira. He basically wants to seduce Kira, right? And he knows that Kira has mm. a soft spot for his daughter. But mm. also... She's kind of compromised by Zial. I mean, that's the thing. It's like she's putting up this tough front with Descartes and he's found the kind of chink in her armour, in a sense. He's found the way of getting to her because he knows she can't quite say no to her, you know. Yeah, but it's, also... You're right, he's completely using her. And like the thing with the dress, again, it's like, it, it you know, it just shows you how kind of calculating and how unprincipled to cut is you know he buys this dress for kira she she rejects it and then that scene he has between him and zial you know it's just so skin crawlingly awful the way he you know he represents himself as this wonderful generous father you know and we know he's like you say he's just using her basically but zial also says that she didn't feel comfortable at the arts universe art, in art college or wherever she was the university mm. in bajor and when Damar mm. comes to her and says, you know, you need to be a true daughter of Cardassia, and she says, it should be clear, even to you, Damar, that I am not a true daughter of Cardassia. So she's not going to be accepted on Cardassia, you know, mm. and she's not going to be accepted on Bajor. And so, in a way, there's this, like, extra victim that comes into all of this. There's this, this real victim, I mean, a really unknowing, innocent victim, which is a child born mm. of this unequal relationship, you know, a child born mm. of a collaborating woman, you know, or, or, or a jerry bag, or a child born of, to a, a, a Bajoran woman who slept with a Cardassian. So, mm. in a way, Zial is kind of doomed almost from the beginning. There's no way in which she can reconcile that because that's part of her heritage. And although Kira, mm. Kira looks beyond it because Kira knows that Zial's innocent. And in a way, actually, mm. she's very good about not criticizing, like, Dukat to, to Zial. She's very good about not too, being too negative about Dukat because she knows that Dukat is Zial's father. But mm. at the same time, you know, there's no way that, that, that Zial can get away from that. I mean, she could try and believe that her father loved her mother, but her father was also an, like an occupying dictator, you know, mm. do you know what I mean? So he, 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 he was, he was part of the culture that came and took away the freedom of the culture of her mother. It's this weird kind of conflict she must have. 
Well, and, you know, when we first meet Zial, Dukat tries to kill her, doesn't he? Or his intention is to kill her anyway, you know. So I don't know if it's a... I don't know if it's a shortcoming of, of this story, but like, I, I do always feel with, with Zial, she is a very sweet character. She is a very likable character. She is almost so blinkered. It's kind of, I always find it slightly hard to believe that she <laughs> is so, I mean, except that I suppose you have to believe it's kind of a defense mechanism that she has to tell herself that her father's a decent man because all the evidence suggests that he's just awful, particularly in relation <laughs> to her. Um, but that somehow she's kind of, She's so desperate to believe it that she can kind of, you know, concoct a, a, a reality in which that seems to be the case. I suppose that's maybe that's how we understand it. But you're right. It is quite interesting that Kira doesn't really dismantle that for her. You know, you would expect her to absolutely be the one saying, you know, your father is an evil man. Cut him out of your life. Don't have anything to do with him. You know, and she doesn't. She kind of respects that they have that relationship and that she will kind of not get in the way of that in a sense. Not will not, you know, she says, I'm not going to, uh, doesn't she? She said, I'm not going to ask you to choose or I know you're never going to. Yeah. Basically, I know you're never going to choose me over your father. She says, she says something like, you're angry now, but he's your father. So she's, she's very clear that like, that your feelings are, are sort of different because of the fact that he is a parent and he is a family member. I wonder if that's because Kieran knows how important parents are to someone who doesn't have any. You know, and ZL doesn't have any other family, really, does she? So, and although she's accepted by Kira, it's not clear if she's accepted by other Bajorans on the station or, you know, so, and I think that's one reason why she, she kind of latches on to Garrick because Garrick is Cardassian, but he's also kind of hated by the Cardassians because he's been exiled and yeah it, I, I feel that Zial is doomed and I felt like she was doomed actually very early on because <laughs> right. there's no yeah, way yeah. she can win yeah. in this situation she has to betray her father and but by betraying her father she also sort of breaks her heart and mm. uh, she's I, one other thing that really confused me and this is a minor point but why Ducat sent Damar to try and win Zial's affections back because I think Damar is like the worst mm. person to send. It's like adding gasoline to a fire. Do you know what I mean? It's like the worst decision. So I don't know if Dukat definitely, even definitely. really actually does understand Zial or actually care about her as much as he pretends to or acts like he does. I think she sort of represents something for him partly, doesn't it? I mean, she represents maybe this idea that he can be the better man, that he can be different to how he was in the past. You know, because she, she, I mean, literally he didn't kill her. He, he has tried to then have this relationship with her. He, it's almost like she's wrapped up in that kind of idea of his that he can not be defined by his previous crimes in a sense do you know what i mean and that he can kind of move beyond that and i think that's one reason that you know at the end he, keep, he keeps saying i forgive you i forgive you you know there's this kind of like is, is he really forgiving her is he trying is he does he, really what he wants is for her to forgive him isn't it and that kind of weird dynamic i mean why is it that her dying is the thing that finally pushes him over the edge you know into a kind of complete sort of psychotic breakdown basically it, it, you know she obviously represents something for him it's not just that She's his beloved daughter because, frankly, he's only known her for a couple of years, hasn't he? <laughs> you know what I mean? And he has lots of other children. You can't love her that much. <laughs> uh, that, he, we, that we assume that he's closer to. It's like it, she's sort of symbolic of something that is, you know, I suppose partly because she's half Bajoran, she's half Cardassian. He's got this weird, twisted fantasy that the Bajorans ought to be in love with him. You know, we see it later on when he he sets up that kind of cult uh, where they're all worshipping him and so on. You you know, he's kind of... And then has another... She's almost, he then has she another almost, baby if she, as well. 
with a pejorative. Yeah, 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 exactly. Exactly, yeah. I mean, if, if she could love him unconditionally and forgive him for everything that he'd done, it would sort of validate his whole sense of himself as a person somehow. Do you know what I mean? Uh, so, so I think maybe that's part of it is that she represents this kind of, almost this sort of redemption for him, theoretically. Although, in fact, the way he treats her is again very much sort of as a, a means to an end you know he treats her very much as a kind of um a way of getting to kira or a way of getting what he wants you know she's you know it's really just it's all about gold it's all about his kind of destiny and his kind of you know he's he's obsessed with how other people feel about him and so obviously having a daughter who has mixed feelings about him is um is problematic from that point of view i mean i can't imagine that the writers of star trek deep space nine necessarily took the channel islands the occupation of the channel islands as <laughs> as as uh, inspiration to write deep space nines but i'm pretty sure they probably no. did look at great megalomaniac dictators and warmongers throughout history to take inspiration mm. for gold gold cat but on that note duncan tell us where and when can people buy your book when is it going to be released and how do people purchase it how can people you know how can people across the world get it Sure. Okay. Well, if you want to read more about the occupation of the Channel Islands, the book is called Hitler's British Isles. It's published by Simon and Schuster. If we've got our timing and our scheduling correct, then it should be released. Well, if you're listening to this, you know, straight out of the gate, as soon as as soon as it pops up in your feed, then it'll be out tomorrow. Uh, if you're you know a bit slower with your podcast, then it's probably out already. And either way, if you uh, you know head down to your local bookshop, if you're in the UK, they probably will you know have a copy. They usually get them in a few days early anyway. Or you can order it on Amazon. I'll put the uh, Amazon link in the show notes if anyone wants to order it from there. I don't know. One thing I would say, this is the first book that I've written that has come out in hardback. I'm a bit horrified at how expensive it is. Normally my books cost $7.99. This one costs £20. I thought as a kind of a, a gesture to Trek FM listeners, if anyone does buy a copy of the hardback, I will send you for free uh, a copy of my Star Trek book, Star Trek The Human Frontier. Aww, if you just uh, that's very kind tweet, tweet me a... <laughs> it's all right, I've got a staff... <laughs> pile of them on the shelf so it's not costing me very much but just as an added incentive just tweet me at barrett's books tweet me a picture of the hardback that you ordered and uh give me your name and address and if you can just send me the postage and packing i'll, I'll send you one of those over for free uh to say thank you because i know it's um i wouldn't pay 20 pounds for a book i have to say i don't think i've ever paid that much for a book yeah so, but for um, this one though, oh, well, it's a bit of pause, it's for but, this know. one is it's well, really you know, good okay. i would i would really really recommend well there you go and it's maybe it's worth it's it. you know living history it's oral history in action you know and it's and it's a it's a it's mm-hmm. a type of story that you're not going to find really anywhere else because it's a particular like we're saying it's a particular type of occupation it's a particular type of part of world war Two history that doesn't get talked about also are you going to be talking about this book anywhere publicly where perhaps maybe UK listeners could come and hear you talk? Yes, I will be. I, I'm doing it. I don't know if it's quite confirmed. I'm, I'm doing some events in Guernsey, but I'm assuming we don't have any listeners in Guernsey. Uh, if we do, you know, then I apologise. Uh, if if, uh, if, if you, know. yeah, I, if you are doing... in Guernsey and you listen to Trek FM, please do tell us. <laughs> 
Definitely. We'd like to hear from you. Well, there is a, there is a house in Guernsey because the house in Guernsey, although uh, this is one thing I found very difficult researching the book, they don't have numbers. The houses they have names, and there is a house called Imzadi. So I assume there's at least one Star Trek fan <laughs> in Guernsey um, who's named his house uh, after it. But um, I, I don't know who that person is. I haven't been bold enough to go and knock on the door. <laughs> but uh, you know, if, on the on the slim chance that you're listening, you know, get in touch and let me know. But I will I will be doing some events in London. I will I'll post those details on my Twitter feed uh, near to the time so you know keep an eye on that if you're interested uh if you want actually I, i've got a separate twitter feed just for the book itself so my twitter uh as you probably you know as, as we mention every week is at barrett's books but i've also got a twitter feed at occupation book which is just specifically for this book so i'll certainly put the details of any events on there and if you haven't got fed up by now of hearing me bang on about the occupation <laughs> in my dulcet tones and if you don't fancy spending 20 pounds on the hardback if any of our members have an audible subscription i'm actually just about to record the audiobook version of this book so if you do have an audible subscription you should i think be able to get it through there i actually i i realize i um i agreed to do this and i've been working my way through the manuscript i kind of steeled myself to the fact that there's a lot of german in the book that i was going to have to get my head around <laughs> um and then i got to the end of it and i suddenly remembered that one of the local families in the book is Scottish. And I thought, oh my God, I'm going to have to do this Scottish accent throughout. So I've been in contact with uh, Lee Hutchison, formerly of Earl Grey, uh, and, uh, you know, a regular on the Trek FM network. And he is sending me some <laughs> Scottish dialogue recordings. Because uh, as I told him, if I didn't get a bit of help, it was going to basically be Scrooge McDuck, I think, in the Channel Islands. <laughs> so uh, so that's, that's what I'm doing next. And so if you do have an Audible subscription, that's another way of... Um, getting hold of it if if that appeals to you well excellent I, I look forward to hearing that actually it'd be like a like a, a trek fm <laughs> family audible book which would be really really fun mm. so it's been really interesting taking a look at deep space nine the dominion occupation the occupation of the channel islands and of course duncan's new book but this is not the only subject that's been discussed on the network so here's a look at what you might have missed elsewhere on trek fm previously on trek.fm to the journey! Do you have to have the stick to be the grand proxy? The scepter? Yeah. I see it as a walking <laughs> stick. <laughs> um, is that supposed to be the grand negus's um, scepter? Or is that the actual one? Or, oh my it's a gosh. replica, of course, but is it supposed to be the actual one? I don't know, but what it reminds me of totally is old Biff from Back to the Future, old Biff, <laughs> yes. with his his cane that he hits people on the head with. That is totally it. Hello! <laughs> McFly! Think McFly, think. Standard Orbit. People are coming over and they're introducing people to him and it's my turn. And he goes, Steve, uh, Jim, uh, Jimmy, I want you to meet the, the host of the convention. This is Stephen Last. And he goes, please to meet you, sir. Nice to meet you, Mr. Dewan. And he goes, hi, Steve. Nice to meet you. And he's like, what? What? <laughs> You mean, you mean you don't talk like that? The 602 Club. In particular, I noticed that the most with either Elastigirl or Violet, because it's sort of like you and I were talking about before the show, it, Helen, Elastigirl, really shows that she's Elastigirl not only in what she does as a superhero, but in showing the things that a regular mom has to deal with, you know, whether you're a single mom or, you know, a, a big family, it's something that um, traditionally they're trying to show that um, a, a parent goes through. Warp 5. Right, because Frankenstein himself 
like it doesn't really mistreat the monster, right? They've got him locked up, chained up, and whatnot, right? Because he's they don't know what to do with him. I guess like now that I've made this corpse, well, now what, right? Like, like yeah. you know, it's not like a puppy. Never right? thinking like, about the end game. Just like all those you know master villains, it's like yeah, you uh, you rule the world, and then what? Right. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favourite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad or Apple TV or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they're published. And please leave us a star rating and a written review. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and in most third-party apps. And you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place is to join the larger conversation at the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type in Babel that's B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm contact. Choose to send to a show and select Primitive Culture. That will come right to us. You can also find the network on Twitter at trek.fm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. We are Primitive Culture and we are your hosts. My name is Clara Cook and you can find me on Twitter at Clara Jean MC. My co-host is Duncan Barrett, and you can find Duncan on Twitter, at Barrett's Books. If you'd like to help us keep all our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trek.fm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trek.fm to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more. Available through our special patrons website patron zone it requires a great deal of money to produce host and distribute these shows each month we really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team again you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm now i'd like to express a big thank you to our executive producer amy nelson you can find amy nelson on the earl grey podcast on Trek FM. So thank you everyone for listening to this episode of Primitive Culture, a Trek FM podcast about our history, our culture, and how Star Trek relates to it. You're blended, all right.